Hi, and welcome to this Living Digital podcast series brought to you by Schlumberger. We make this series so that you can hear perspectives and thoughts from professionals across the energy industry, be that geoscientists, petrotechnical experts, executives, data scientists, and more. Some of these episodes from Living Digital are going to be focused on the wide-ranging topic of energy transition, and we're going to have a chance to sit down with experts from various fields to begin to dig a little bit deeper into the different technologies that are ultimately helping us to address the current challenges we face in reducing the world's emissions, but also in generating new low-carbon energy in a sustainable way. So I'm Sam Tilly, a geoscientist by background who's passionate about the topic of energy transition and about the energy industry being able to provide the world with the energy it needs, but doing so in a responsible and sustainable manner. And I'll be your host as we start to unpick some of these different themes that ultimately come together to build a comprehensive picture and story about why the energy transition is such an important topic right now. We'll also take a look at the role that Schlumberger is playing when it comes to developing new technologies to better serve the wider energy industry and other industries as well to help reduce emissions and generate this new low-carbon energy that the world so desperately needs as we continue to see this ever-increasing demand. So in this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined today by Drew Pomerantz to discuss a passion of his, which is the topic of methane and specifically methane in the context of the energy industry. So Drew, thank you very much for being here today to talk this through with us. Uh, perhaps you'd like to just quickly introduce yourself. Thanks a lot, Tim. So I'm Drew Pomerantz. I've got about 15 years experience in the oil and gas industry. Uh, my background is chemistry, and I'm based in a research lab that Schlumberger has in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm focused now on thinking about how the oil and gas industry can make a contribution to the energy transition. And what I've really focused on is what I think is the first step in the process, which is reducing the direct emissions associated with oil and gas production. Uh, it turns out that most of our industry's direct emissions come from emissions of methane rather than carbon dioxide. and That's how I got interested in the topic we'll discuss today. Great. Thanks for that intro. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to kick off at a fairly foundational level, um, because whilst I'm sure there are many people who are listening into this who already have a very thorough understanding of what methane is, why it's important, and what we're doing to address it, I'd like to start with a fairly low barrier to entry here. So can you begin by just talking us through what is methane at a very fundamental level and ultimately why should we care about it? Sure. So methane is the main component of natural gas and we care about it, at least for today's discussion, because of climate change. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas, much more potent than carbon dioxide when it's in the atmosphere, although it doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide does. If you think about things on a ton-for-ton -ton basis, one ton of methane causes as much global warming as 28 tons of carbon dioxide over a 100-year period, and as much as 84 tons of carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. In fact, if you think about things over a 20-year period, about 40% of all man-made global warming comes from emissions of methane. So when we think about methane as the second most important greenhouse gas behind carbon dioxide, it's not by very much. Okay, so that's a really nice, useful introduction there. So you've just spoken quite clearly to how impactful methane is as a greenhouse gas, gives us a lot of useful context. Can you now give us an idea as to what are the key sources 
that we're concerned about today and which ones are we keeping our eyes on and why why have we got our eyes on certain sources over others uh, that'd be really useful so it turns out there are quite a few sources of methane emissions uh, there's natural sources like wetlands there are uh, anthropogenic or, or man-made sources like agriculture it turns out agriculture is actually the largest source of methane emissions but then of course there's also fossil fuels including oil and gas um, Oil and gas may not be the largest source of methane emissions, but it's still a pretty large one. If you, uh, in fact, there is more greenhouse gas impact from methane emissions from the oil and gas industry than there are from all of Europe. So if you think about the topic that we're discussing today, methane emissions from the oil and gas industry, in terms of climate change, we're talking about a continent. It's got that kind of impact. So. Because of that scale, obviously, I think it's uh, worth uh, monitoring methane from all sorts of different sources. But although there are these many sources, the one that really received the most attention is methane emissions from oil and gas. It's received that attention not because it's the largest source, but because it's the most actionable. Emitting methane is not an inherent part of oil and gas production. We don't need to emit methane in order to produce oil and gas. We emit methane because the plumbing isn't quite right. So when we talk about how we reduce methane emissions from the industry, we're really talking about looking for places where we need to repair or upgrade that plumbing. Okay, that's fantastic. And quite a staggering statistic that um, this impact is on the scale of Europe. So again, really speaking to the importance there. So you talk about needing to address the plumbing. So if we're looking for methane emissions that are specifically from oil and gas operations, how do you begin to find those so that you can actually start to do something about them? And presumably there's a whole host of ways that you can do that. So can you maybe speak a little bit to the cost implications of those different ways for hunting them down? So I think of finding methane emissions from the oil and gas industry is sort of like trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's a haystack because the oil and gas industry is so large, right? Here in the U.S., we have around a million producing wells, plus even more than that that aren't producing anymore. And, of course, even more than that when you talk about things internationally. So there are just a very large number of facilities that, that could be sources of methane emissions. It's a needle because remember that methane is a potent greenhouse gas. On a volume basis, the industry doesn't really emit that much methane. The, on a volume basis, the amount of methane that's emitted is far less than the amount of carbon dioxide that's emitted. And the amount of methane that is emitted is a pretty small fraction of the total methane that's handled. So the reason that methane is a problem is not because such a large volume is emitted, but because it's such a potent greenhouse gas that even the small volumes that are emitted have a pretty large environmental effect. Uh, in addition, it turns out that most oil and gas facilities don't hardly emit any methane at all, or really only a negligible amount. Rather, most of the industry's methane emissions come from a relatively small number of what people refer to as super-emitting facilities. So the challenge in, in finding oil and gas methane emissions is how do you find these super-emitting needles in this haystack of millions of facilities? Now, one of the things that makes that complicated is that although we are learning more and more every day about methane emissions, we still don't know enough about their source in order to make good predictions as to which locations are going to be the super emitters. Um, 
it's natural to expect that a, a, a small facility, a facility that handles a small amount of oil and gas, is likely to reduce, uh, likely to emit less methane than a larger facility. And while it's true that small facilities are less likely to be super emitters than large facilities, there still are plenty of uh, small facilities that, that are super emitters. So when you think about how to do this monitoring, one thing to keep in mind is you do want to inspect pretty much every facility that you've got. Not necessarily with the same rigor and probably inspect larger facilities more rigorous, rigorously than small ones, but you really want to cast a wide net and include all of the industry's assets. Then when you think about how you're gonna do this inspection and what technologies you're gonna use, there are really two attributes that, that uh, you should keep in mind. The first one is that you want to have your detector be pretty sensitive. You want it to be sensitive enough to pick up all the significant leaks. Um, like we discussed, it doesn't have to be perfectly sensitive. There are some very small leaks that I think you can afford to emit, but you want to be sensitive enough to pick up all the big ones. Then the other thing is you want your inspection to be frequent. You want to inspect often enough so that if you do have a leak, you can find it and you can fix it pretty quickly before it's had a chance to put too much methane into the atmosphere. The challenge is that we want a detector that's sensitive and we want one that's deployed frequently. But building a detector that's sensitive is usually more expensive than building a detector that's less sensitive. And deploying a detector frequently is always more expensive than deploying a detector less frequently. So now when we think we've got to have a system that, uh, that covers all the locations, is sensitive, is frequent, and also is affordable, that's where you've got to make some trade-offs. And what the industry is looking for now is how to find a balance of detection where you're sensitive enough to find the big leaks, to find the leaks that you need to find, but also inexpensive enough that you can afford to deploy your detector frequently. And getting pretty excited from a technology side. There are folks developing all sorts of fantastic new technologies, whether it's satellites or drones or lasers or lab on a chip devices that try to strike that balance between sensitivity and affordability. Okay, so that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm keen to come back to the technology uh, point shortly. But firstly, I'd like to keep pulling on this thread and going in the same flow that we've been following. So we've found some emissions now. We've found the needle in the haystack. What next? How do you appropriately act on the new information that you're now armed with? And I suppose, how are there any expectations on you to do something in specific things with that new information? So that depends on the root cause. And, you know, there can be a lot of causes for methane emissions. Uh, in some case, the problem is relatively simple. It's a, it's a bolt that's come loose or a valve that's turned the wrong way. Uh, in that case, the, the problem can be repaired essentially immediately. And when you think about the solution here, the, the solution is more about finding the problem than fixing it. But that's not always the case. There are some instances where methane, uh, where the root cause of methane emissions is, I'll say, equipment that's in need of an upgrade. So I'll give you two examples. One is if you have equipment that is undersized for the production, at least the today's production from the facility. So there, the solution is replacing that equipment with something that's got a capacity that's more appropriately sized for the facility. Uh, another example is if you have facilities in remote locations that aren't connected to power, that don't have a good power source. 
sometimes one of the ways that you get the power to open and close valves or things that you need to do on the well site is via a process that takes advantage of the high pressure of gas in the line um, that actually results in allowing some of that gas to be vented to the atmosphere. So in, in those cases, the repair is really more of the, the challenge than, than the finding is. Um, the solution is you know, developing or installing more modern equipment, but that brings some challenges with it as well. Just like for detection, uh, new equipment can add some cost to the system. And just like in detection, there are new technologies being invaded here in the, in the mitigation space that try to reduce those costs. Okay, nice. So I suppose a little bit more on that then. Are there any obvious or fundamental challenges that you typically face when it comes to monitoring these? We've heard a little bit now, you've just spoken around how monitoring is generally done, but what kind of things do you need to overcome whilst you're trying to acquire all these different types of data? And how do you go about addressing those issues? So I think there are three main challenges. The first one is scale. And we talked about this before. The oil and gas industry is just so large, so many facilities, so many inspections, so much data to handle. The size of the industry sort of inherently provides a challenge. Uh, a second one is cost. So uh, the way I think about that is, you know, natural gas is a great fuel for a number of reasons, one of which is that it's affordable. In addition to being affordable, natural gas needs to be better for the environment. We need to reduce methane emissions. But we can't uh, achieve that success in being better for the environment at the expense of losing the affordability of the fuel. We have to be both good for the environment and affordable. And, and that can be a challenge. There are some cases where that's not a challenge. There are some cases where reducing methane emissions can actually be a profitable exercise. So methane that is emitted to the atmosphere is not sold to a customer. So if you can keep your methane in your, in your sales pipeline, you can get some additional revenue out of that. And there are some examples where the value of the product you've saved by reducing your methane emissions is actually greater than the amount that you've spent on the technology to reduce those emissions. And, and, and that's fantastic. But there aren't enough of those, even if the industry reduced all of the methane emissions that could be reduced for a profit, that wouldn't be enough. The industry still needs to do more, reduce methane emissions to a greater extent than that. So that means we are talking about some instances where reducing methane emissions is going to, going to cost money, it's going to represent a cost. And one area there that I think is particularly a challenge is thinking about methane emissions from relatively low producing wells. So there are a lot of wells that don't produce that much oil or gas. And well, inspecting those wells for methane emissions is less expensive than, than inspecting larger facilities. It's not that much less expensive. So when you think about these facilities, you don't want to omit them. Right? They are less likely to become super emitters, but they can become super emitters. They need to be inspected, at least to some extent. But you can't expect that those facilities will be inspected with, the, with technologies that are maybe more appropriate for larger facilities. There have to be technologies where the cost is appropriate for the kind of facility you're inspecting. And then to me, the third sort of big picture challenge is on complexity. So methane world is a fast moving space. There are many things that are changing. Uh, one example is regulation. So there are some regulations about methane emissions. 
those regulations are different in different parts of the world. And even with the same part of the world, they can change with time based, in, based on who's in government. So one of the challenges to keeping up with the complexity of regulations that I'll say can vary in space and in time. Another uh, challenge has to do with the technology. There are all these fantastic technologies with drones and lasers and airplanes and all this sort of thing, and, and that's fantastic. But one of the reasons there are so many technologies is I think it's safe to say that there's no one technology that's the best. There's no one silver bullet. There's some technologies that work well in some circumstances and other technologies that work well in other circumstances, but no, no simple answer. So one of the challenges is trying to find what's the right combination of different technologies to inspect uh, the job at hand. Okay, that's really nice. So I'd like to just quickly hit pause for a second so that we can uh, have a bit of a recap of everything you've said up to now, because you've given us an idea of what methane is and why it's important where typically we see these key sources of these emissions. We know a little bit now about how we're monitoring these and equally how we take actions based on that information that we find about those new emissions. And then, of course, we've touched on the various challenges. So I suppose a question for you now, as someone who's obviously very closely aligned with this field and working within Schlumberger, is can you give us an idea of what Schlumberger is doing in this space with respect to the technology that we as an energy services provider are developing to help better address that set of challenges that we've just kind of gone over in the last five or ten minutes? Uh, maybe on the hardware side. So one of the things that Schlumberger has been doing for a while is developing low emission equipment. I think the best example of that is a series of low emission valves that Schlumberger offers. But to speak more specifically about the kind of detection things that we've been talking about, Schlumberger has been doing a few things in that area as well. So one is that Schlumberger is an investor in a startup company called GHGSat that makes really a fantastic satellite technology. I'll just put a little perspective. Uh, there are government-run satellites that inspect for methane emissions that are, as I think of them, they're operated in kind of a zoomed-out manner. That is, they're zoomed out where they can see uh, methane emissions coming from effectively the whole world. But the way they get such a great coverage is they lose a little bit on the resolution. The pixel size is so large that even if they find a methane emission, it's hard to figure out exactly where it's coming from. Uh, GHGSat is a private company that makes kind of a complementary satellite that's more on the zoomed in style. So while GHGSat doesn't have the coverage to look at the whole world, what it does look at, it can tell you with pretty good resolution, with quite a small pixel, where that methane emission is coming from. So those two technologies are best when they're paired together, where the government satellites sort of get you in the neighborhood. They look everywhere, and they get you in the neighborhood for where these large methane emissions are. And then the GHGSat satellite comes in and tells you exactly which facility in that neighborhood is, is responsible for the emission. Now, I think that's really a fantastic way to look for methane leaks, but again, like everything, nothing's in, nothing is perfect. One of the drawbacks of satellites is because you're so far away, it can be difficult for a satellite to detect relatively small leaks. So one of the things we've been looking there are inspections from airplanes. Airplanes are closer. They can be more sensitive than satellites, although they don't move as fast as satellites. That's a, a drawback there. So one of the things we've done recently is that we've published a paper in a peer-reviewed academic journal 
that looked at the optimum way to deploy airplane methane detectors. And to think about this challenge of scale and to think what would be involved in deploying airplanes to inspect for methane emissions over very large numbers of facilities spanning very large geographic areas. Then, in addition to that, the last thing that I think is noteworthy is that we've been doing a lot of field tests of emerging methane detection technology. So we've tested some new sensors on our own. We've done some tests with, uh, with operating companies, with academics, and even with uh, nonprofit organizations thinking about methane. Okay, great. So you've, you've covered quite a few things there across a range of scales, everything right the way up to satellites, which is very cool. Um, if I could just get us to now pivot a little bit towards the software and data space, what are Schlumberger doing to handle all of that information that's coming out of the sensors and the various bits of kit that you've just mentioned? So, Sam, I think most of your listeners are aware that the oil and gas industry generates a pretty large quantity of data, everything from exploration on through to production. And, of course, Schlumberger is involved in managing that data in, in many ways. And so one of the things that we're thinking of from a Schlumberger perspective is how to add a layer to that relating to methane data. And here we're trying to cast a pretty large net and, and come up with software uh, packages that can incorporate data from all sorts of sensors, both private sensors and, and public sensors, uh, and get that into the same package uh, as the data uh, that where we already store data with other kinds of facility information. Now, there, I think, are a few ways uh, where that can be beneficial. One is, you know, we mentioned earlier that we, at the moment, don't have such a great understanding about what is the source of these methane emissions, and we're not very good at predicting which facilities are likely to become large emitters. We think there's a, a potential to use database techniques like machine learning or, or artificial intelligence to try to understand what these patterns are and try to make some predictions. And I think, well, at least in these kind of data platforms, we'll have information about the facilities, and if we add on top of that information about methane, at least we have the data where we can start to look for some of those patterns. Uh, some of the other things we've been doing is trying to incorporate other environmental data as well. So there are many cases where methane really is the, the, the key environmental indicator, but there are other areas where it's appropriate to consider other environmental aspects as well. So we're trying in that same data platform to include information on other metrics describing air quality or water quality, and even things like uh, light pollution and noise pollution. Very cool and very interesting. Um, well, now, look, I know it's really hard to squeeze everything that we could potentially cover on such a large topic into such a short space of time, but... As we start to kind of bring the different threads in together, are there any final things that you'd like to just wrap up with and finish on? Sure. Well, you know, I, I don't want to get too philosophical, especially as you're looking to wrap things up. But, but I did want to state what I just think is sort of the big picture view on methane emissions. And that is, I think, reducing methane emissions is our industry's obligation and it is our industry's opportunity. And let me explain what I mean by that. Now, in terms of obligation, when I started working for Schlumberger, I went to the new employee orientation, and I was taught that we in the oil and gas industry are stewards of the earth. It is our charter to produce oil and gas in the most environmentally responsible way possible. And now that environmental responsibility is focused more and more on climate change, 
and now we're aware that our direct contribution to climate change comes mostly from methane emissions, it's our charter to reduce methane emissions associated with our industry's operations. But what I really want to focus on here is the opportunity. So I think it's well understood that society, and I'll say to be quite specific about it, energy consumers are increasingly focused on low carbon fuels. And of course, that means an expansion in renewable energy sources. But what that means for our industry is, is pretty interesting as well. Uh, renewable energy sources are, are great, but like anything else, they're not perfect. And one of the drawbacks is that they are intermittent. So for times when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, you need some way to provide, provide power. That could be through a lot of energy storage, uh, although that's not really feasible today. Instead, to complement renewable energy sources, we'll need stable baseload energy sources. And, and you know, there are two energy systems that right now can provide at the scale the sort of baseload energy that we need, and those are coal and natural gas. Now, again, because the goal here is to reduce methane emissions, sorry, is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we want to make sure that even our stable baseload power is relatively low carbon. And if you think about our two options, natural gas can provide power with about half the carbon dioxide footprint that coal provides. So when you think about energy consumers moving towards more low carbon fuels and there being more renewables, where this challenge of intermittency becomes even greater, the world will demand even more baseload energy where that baseload comes from a low carbon source. And natural gas ought to be that low carbon source because of its inherent advantage over coal. The challenge is that while natural gas has a better carbon dioxide footprint than coal, natural gas has a worse methane footprint than coal. And that methane footprint can erode some of the advantage that natural gas has inherently. But that's something we can change. The carbon dioxide footprint of a fuel is very difficult to change. It's, it's determined by the chemistry of the fuel. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. But emitting methane is not inherent to the natural gas industry. We don't have to emit methane. Methane is emitted by the choices we make. That means we have the opportunity to reduce our methane emissions. And as we do that, as the world wants stable fuels that are low in greenhouse gas footprint, if we can reduce our methane emissions, we have the opportunity to be the scalable, baseline, low carbon energy source that the world needs even more of in the transition to the low carbon economy. That's great. Thanks, Drew. And I have to say, I couldn't agree more about this being both an obligation um, and also an opportunity that's being presented to us. So I think that's a really excellent place to finish here. So just to reiterate my thanks, Drew, for taking the time to uh, bring us on along on our whistle-stop tour of all things methane. I've really enjoyed that. And it certainly for me, helped clarify the importance and role of technologies that are ultimately helping to tackle these really potent emissions and therefore helping facilitate that genuine energy transition. So I hope those of you who are listening have also found that interesting. And to make sure that you're always up to date with the latest in the Living Digital podcast series, be that on our digital themes or those around energy transition, then please make sure that you click to subscribe. And if you want to hear more about our energy transition solutions specifically, then head on over to www.software.slb.com forward slash sustainability, where you can find out more details. So that's all from me today. Thanks again for listening and goodbye.